Jesus famously told his disciple, Peter, that Peter would be the rock upon which he would build his church. Now, of course, Jesus didn't actually use the word church. The Greek word is ecclesia, which is simply a gathering of citizens towards some common purpose. In other words, Jesus tasked Peter with leading a movement. Now, the book of Acts is a chronicle of that movement's earliest days, beginning with a very small congregation in Jerusalem, which, at a glance, may seem very different from how we imagine a church to be. They met in people's homes. There were no programs, no youth groups, no annual fund drives, per se. That movement, the church, has looked radically different throughout history. So now, as citizens of the 21st century, we must ask ourselves, what does it mean to be the church today? Our scripture today comes from Acts chapter 2, verses 43 to 47. And if you prefer pictures with your scripture, you may look at the Spark Story Bible, the story Early Believers on pages 504 and 505. Awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, they spent much time together in the temple. They broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. May they be in keeping the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I don't like commercials. I mean, I really don't like commercials. I dislike them intensely, perhaps even more than most people. It's not that they disrupt whatever it is I'm trying to watch or listen to, though of course I'm not especially fond of that either. Though the real thing that, that gets to me is their frequent dishonesty. You know, for the most part, commercials portray a world that does not exist. It's polished and curated, a world where Every beverage you drink is the best thing you've ever tasted, where every hamburger is flame-broiled. We all know they paint those black lines on the hamburger. I, I am friends with a guy who used to make these kinds of commercials, and uh, he worked on filming commercials for cereal. And he would tell me that instead of milk, they would use glue as they poured it into the bowl because it was so rich and creamy looking. None of this is real. It's a world that revolves around you and aims to please. Immaculate homes house perfect families. And even when something goes wrong, like a toddler spills his milk, or glue, or whatever it is in the commercial, his parents just roll their eyes with amusement instead of shouting or breaking down in tears like we do in my house. 
maybe it's because in this fictional universe, an animated roll of paper towels is about to fly out of the kitchen and clean the mess up. Slogans, at times, can also feel inauthentic. Uh, Apple tells us to think different while it tries to sell you an iPhone that looks exactly like the last 10 iPhones. I'm loving it, McDonald's proclaims, usually plastered alongside a grinning fry cook on a poster, as though there's no place else she'd rather be. Of course, they don't show the hot oil burns on her arms or the greasy pimples on her face or the discontent in her soul. <laughs> Just doesn't ring true. There was a movie back in the 80s that starred Dudley Moore as an ad man who suffers a nervous breakdown, and he starts launching these sort of controversial advertising campaigns, including a Volvo ad that says, they're boxy, but they're good. And a magazine advert for Jaguar that boasts cars for rich men who want to impress women who are better looking than they are. Sorry if you drive a Jaguar, I didn't make that up. Now it sounds crazy, but personally I'd be more inclined to support a company that isn't afraid to poke fun at itself. Some years ago there was a cough syrup called Buckley's. The slogan was simply, Buckley's. It tastes terrible, but it works. Well, I was so impressed, you know, with their willingness to tell it like it is that as soon as I got sick again, I ran out and I bought a bottle of Buckley's, but it was a lie. Yes, Buckley's cough syrup tasted terrible, but it didn't work. <laughs> and yet, while I confess that I am suspicious of advertising in general, I serve an organization, the church, that has a need to communicate its value to those both within and beyond its walls. We call this evangelism in church circles, spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. But it's not so different in practice from marketing. It is, however, or at least it should be, different in principle. We aren't trying to sell something for the benefit of, of shareholders. We are trying to share something for the benefit of stakeholders. That's all of you. We aren't in the business of profit unless it profits the soul. But in a world of commercials and ad campaigns and marketing science, how does one effectively communicate the good news of the gospel? Our denomination, the United Church of Christ, has struggled to answer that question with varying degrees of success. About 15 years ago, the wider church launched its most successful evangelism vehicle to date, which I'm sure a lot of you remember quite well, that was the God is Still Speaking campaign, which was a robust collection of catchy slogans, bold visuals, clear branding, and memorable commercials. Never place a period where God has placed a comma, the UCC declared, proclaiming the unfinished nature of God's work in a changing world. The uh, office in Cleveland created these Posters, bold statements in red and black that couldn't help but get your attention. Now, in case you don't recall, or if you're new to the UCC, I brought a couple of these to share with you. Um, so this one, this one says, if Jesus embraced 
Lepers, prostitutes, and convicts, shouldn't we? Pretty good. If you thought getting up on Sunday is hard, try rising from the dead. <laughs> Not bad. Really catches the eye on a, on a billboard. Now, um, at the time, I was new to ministry, and I actually created my very own uh, UCC poster, which I admit is a little provocative. That was sort of the idea. Um, and it says... We put the by in Bible. <laughs> that one didn't go over so well when I brought it to the Wheaton College Ministry Fair. <laughs> the thing that got the most attention, though, um, was a whimsical television commercial about a church with these big burly bouncers standing outside who decided who was welcome in church and who wasn't. Um, the message, of course, was that everyone is welcome in the United Church of Christ, you know, regardless of sexual orientation or theological belief. It was ironic then when at the height of the commercial's popularity, I was actually barred from entering a worship service at the UCC National Gathering because I wasn't wearing my delegate's lanyard. I was turned away, not by some beefy dude with sunglasses, but rather an unassuming elderly woman who simply refused to let me pass. It was like Buckley's cough syrup all over again. If you're going to market who you are, you got to know who you are. And you'd better tell it like it is, because otherwise you hurt your own credibility. As the tagline for the action movie Machete declares, if you're going to hire Machete to take out the bad guys, you better make sure you aren't one of them. I don't know if that's actually relevant to this, but it's a great tagline. So who are we exactly? Who are we? What exactly is the church? What does it mean to be the church in the 21st century? Back in medieval times, the church was the center of the community. It was literally at the center of town whether it was a small parish church in some remote hamlet in the English countryside or the Cathedral of Notre Dame at the heart of Paris. The church was central to community life in almost every way. It served as the spiritual and civic locus, functioning as both the town hall and as a school, especially in smaller communities. Marketplaces would spring up in its shadows, making it central to local commerce it was a political institution, heavily involved in the governing of communities and the shaping of public policy. Before the invention of the clock, the tolling of the church bell marked the hours of the day. Before there was Netflix or television or radio, the church was one of the few sources of entertainment and leisure, hosting plays and concerts. It also served as a courthouse of sorts, where folks accused of a crime might be tried. They would sometimes do this by lowering the sub suspect into the baptismal font by his feet. Uh, and if he was uh, guilty, then he would float and then be subsequently tried. If he drowned, he was declared innocent. Go figure. As it turns out, this was also a popular form of entertainment. 
back in medieval times. Now, even a couple hundred years ago, the church looked very different than it does today. I was talking with a colleague of mine, the pastor up at the UCC church in Wyzetta, and he told me that he recently unearthed their congregation's original mission statement from the 19th century, which reads, and I quote, to bring civilization to the wicked village of Wyzetta. Tell me that wouldn't look great on a t-shirt or a coffee mug. (laughs) Fortunately, the church is always being reimagined and redefined. And while today's church is more decentralized, perhaps less culturally influential, built closer to the fringes of society than its center, I would argue that the church today is also more faithful to the vision of Jesus' first disciples. If we look back uh, at that very first church portrayed in the Bible, in the book of Acts, it looks a lot like who we are today. Maybe not on the surface, but deep down, it turns out that being the church in the 21st century is not all that different than being the church in the first century. Just after Pentecost, the disciple Peter began amassing followers who wished to be baptized and follow Jesus. They met in people's homes, broke bread together, worshipped God together. But what really stands out about this community to me is its emphasis on purpose, passion, and love. They had a reason for being. They loved God and each other. They shared everything they had for the common good, both within their community and with those outside of it. They took care of each other and others in need. They weren't the center of the local community by any stretch of the imagination, but they had an impact on the local community. And people began to take notice. Even without a fancy marketing campaign, we're told that day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Today we're launching a new campaign of our own here at First Congregational Church, and I think it really captures the spirit of that first worshiping community. You'll see this banner hanging above us that proclaims its name, Be the Church, followed by a series of phrases that describe what that means. Over the next few weeks, we're gonna be focusing on four of them that describe who we are here and our impact in the community. There's quite a few of them. It would be a long sermon series if we uh, did one for each one of those, but we're focusing on four. Care for the poor, embrace diversity, enjoy this life, and love God. These all describe Peter's first gathering of Christ followers, too. They cared for the poor. They took up collections for their needs. They embraced diversity, welcoming people of all tongues and races. They enjoyed life together, breaking bread and helping one another in their personal struggles. And they loved God, coming together for worship and also expressing that in their everyday lives. And we're not so different, really, here, now. We strive to care for the poor and fight for the powerless by partnering with groups like DePage United and PADS and Bridge Communities. We embrace diversity by being an open and affirming church and encouraging our young people and people of all ages to develop their own unique theology and by building bridges with other communities. We try to help folks enjoy their lives, by walking with them in difficult times, 
by encouraging and offering counseling services and trying to eradicate the stigma of mental illness. And we love God, both here in worship on Sunday and every other day of the week when we strive to be the people that God calls us to be. And like those first disciples, we do it together. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need, the scripture tells us. This church is also funded completely by the contributions of its members, just as it functions completely by the contributions and volunteering and the time offered from its members. But this year, instead of simply exhorting the virtue of generosity and asking you to give, we want to give you a compelling reason. Namely, as the scripture tells us, because day by day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. We are in the business of salvation. Not being saved in the evangelical sense of the phrase. We're not interested in rescuing souls from the wiles of the devil, as if to say, not today, Satan. They're with us. But we are in the business of salvation, perhaps in the next life, but most certainly here in this one. Not just our own, but the salvation of our neighbor. Because the church does save people. It saves us. It saves people from poverty, from prejudice, from isolation, from hatred, and a thousand other intolerable realities. The church can even save us from ourselves. I had three dreams about the church last week. The first two reflected my own anxieties as a pastor. In the first dream, I found myself in the Ash Wednesday worship service that we hold every year, only instead of leading the liturgy or the prayers, I was apparently supposed to be playing the piano. Now, I can't even read music, much less play the piano, so I sat there gingerly pressing the keys, trying to comprise a melody of some kind. It was terrifying. It went about as well as you'd expect. In the second dream, I'd invited one of our former interns, Tyler Spellius. You all remember Tyler. I invited him back to preach. Uh, but when he stood up in worship, he was wearing a pink dress, and he began singing in Spanish and dancing the merengue. That actually went over pretty well. Um, I think I might try that sometime. But the third dream, the third dream was really beautiful. I was being wheeled out of a hospital as though being discharged before going home. And as my wheelchair moved through the halls, I looked inside all of the open doors around me as I passed by, and I saw all of you, each family occupying a room, but no one was sick or injured or sad. In fact, it was apparent that whatever struggle or ailment I had seen you endure over the years was over. That you, too, were going home. You were healed. You were saved. And we looked at one another as I passed by so many familiar faces, and we smiled at each other 
And more than once, I held your gaze and tears rolled down my eyes because I knew how much you'd been through. And I knew what it meant to come out on the other side. I looked behind me and saw that Catherine Curtis, our director of Christian education, was the one who was pushing my chair through the halls, much like she guides our children every week. And in time, we moved outside into a beautiful garden where I stood up and the two of us just quietly watched the sunrise together. That place, I believe, was the church. A place where people are gently guided, cared for in times of trouble, healed and saved in God's time. I don't know how to say that with a catchy slogan. But hopefully, be the church will suffice. And now, friends, may you go forth from this place to share the good news, to be the hands and feet of Christ, to be the church in the world, this day and every day. Amen.